Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the BBC, Real Time with Bill Maher, The Young Turks, The Time Is Now, The Randy Rhodes Show, and The Sam Cedar Show. Was the Iraq project doomed from the start? General Paul Eaton was in charge of training the Iraqi military from 2003 to 2004. He's now retired and says what is going wrong in Iraq is a direct result of the flawed military strategy run by the US Defence Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, who he says should resign. He's been speaking in London today and we'll hear from him in a moment. But first, Richard Pearl was chair of the US Defence Policy Board, which advises the Secretary of Defence between 2001 and 2003. He's now a fellow of the the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. I don't believe that a different military strategy would have affected significantly the way things have evolved in Iraq. What would have made a significant difference would have been a different political strategy. And unfortunately, uh, the errors in Iraq policy, and there are many, are in the main errors of political judgment. I certainly do not believe that uh, Rumsfeld should have resigned. I think he has done an excellent job under the very difficult circumstances. Sarah Montague discussed the extent of American planning for a post-war Iraq with Rory Stewart, the coalition's former deputy governor for two provinces in southern Iraq. He's now based in Kabul. But first, General Paul Eaton explained his criticism of the defence secretary. The whole agenda that uh, Mr Rumsfeld had when he came into the position as secretary of defence was really to uh, to streamline the military, transform the military, make it slightly more agile and uh, more efficient. And uh, that translated to fewer soldiers on the ground in any given context. He carried that agenda through in the uh, approach to warfare and the attack into uh, Baghdad to minimize the uh, the number of soldiers committed to the effort. And uh, that paid off uh, badly in the phase four of the of the conflict, the phase reconstruction phase. Basically just not enough troops on the ground. We did not have enough troops on the ground in order to provide that which uh, a government uh, really needs to provide its citizens and that's security. And you were aware of that, that at the time and you were saying that and, and your colleagues were saying that back to Washington? The actual commentary uh, began well in advance and it was started by General Shinseki when he was asked before the Senate Armed Services Committee how many soldiers he believed would be uh, required to prosecute uh, the war. And uh, General Shinseki saw past phase three, admittedly not a terribly uh, challenging phase given the uh, state of uh, Saddam's army, but phase four as the requirement for several hundred thousand soldiers. And Donald Rumsfeld said, uh, consistently said to this no? Consistently said no. Just browbeat the uh, senior military, who I will tell you allowed themselves to be browbeaten into a, uh, a deficient answer and an insufficient number of soldiers committed to the uh, to the effort. Rory Stewart, do you accept this, that if there had been the right number of troops for the reconstruction phase, we wouldn't be where we are now? I actually disagree with the general. I think the fundamental problem was not lack of troops. The fundamental problem was lack of consent from the Iraqi people. And I don't think that would have been overcome by putting more troops on the ground. It was never, it was never going to work. Iraqi society had been damaged significantly by Saddam. There was a real absence of political leadership at a local level. It was an incredibly complex society, 54 new political parties emerging in a single province in four months. 
And my instinct, certainly, and I'm talking from personal experience in Amara and Nasiriya, the number of troops was not the fundamental problem we faced. The fundamental problem we faced was that Iraqi politicians and political leaders were unwilling to cooperate with the project of nation-building as envisaged by Britain in the United States. Now, you obviously took the job of being deputy governor of two provinces. When did you come to the conclusion this is never going to work? I think I recognised this by about April 2004, by which time we were facing in the province a major Saddam insurgency. And in fact, by May 2004, we were under siege in our compound with people firing in 100 rocket propelled grenades and mortars a night. This group, the Sadrists, we'd been told from Baghdad were a small group with very little support. And characteristically, in January 2005, when the elections were held, this group got three times as many votes as the next nearest party in the province. When you're in a situation in which the major anti-coalition force in the province is getting three times as many votes as the next nearest party, you're in trouble. And that's not a trouble that can be solved with troops. Indeed, General Eaton, that is a very bleak assessment because it suggests that nothing you do now is going to make any difference. You, you do think that there are changes that could be put in place now that would lead to some sort of more successful outcome? Sure, I do. And uh, I'd just like to comment. Rory's perspective is, uh, is uh, spot on in a lot of ways. Uh, but in the beginning... When we did fail to provide security for the Iraqi population, it did make all other things very difficult, the economic and the political and the diplomatic uh, agendas that uh, we could very easily have uh, applied or more easily applied in a secure environment. But looking to the future, uh, we need to reemphasize our approach with development of the Iraqi security forces. Uh, we have not applied the, the national uh, treasure to the degree that we can and must do in terms of additional American soldiers, coalition soldiers, to provide the, the spine to, uh, to units. Uh, we're, we're at about a third of what we really need to do to do that. And we have not applied the equipment buys, the amount of money necessary to properly protect our Iraqi security forces. Retired General Paul Eaton and former coalition governor in southern Iraq, Roy Stewart, speaking on Radio 4. This is a war, you know, I was not, and I know you're going to object, but I was not for going in. But I after we that. went in, I said, okay, this is my country, we did this. Let's see how it works. And in 2003, when we were first there, I said, give it a chance. <clears throat> I didn't even call it a mistake. By 2004, it was a mistake. Excuse me, then it was a fiasco, then it was a quagmire, and now it is a scandal. Someone has to tell me who we're fighting for there, because it's not for the Shiites, it's not for the Sunnis, it's not for the Kurds. It may be for well, Halliburton. No, you know. Well, I know that they'll all, they'll all have, they'll all have 
have something to say, but I tell you, uh, it is so important. It is so important for us to do everything that we can to have to have a uh, an open, pluralistic society cropping in the Middle East that will fight against the radical Islamic jihad. Oh, no, and that is, that argument, is, come on, that are argument. Are we just gonna say, give up, it's not gonna happen? But, it, but at a certain point, don't you have to, why is, it, why is it a virtue to have one idea and stick with it way past it's been proven to you that it's not working? Uh, again, okay, again, the Republicans are right. The Republican chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, John Warner, great man from Virginia, came back from Iraq and yesterday said, you know, the stay the course thing, maybe in two or three months we have to change the course because it's not going to work. Right, and that's sort of but, a right-wing mercy. Okay, but on the other hand, I mean, as I told you, my stepson and his wife, they served in Iraq as, as Marine officers, and, and, and Dougie and Lindsay said the pride that they felt uh, serving their country and seeing millions of Iraqi citizens vote for the first time, no, the soldiers you cannot are great. say, you the cannot soldiers say, are great. I know no, we lost 27 soldiers in the last six Absolutely. days. Absolutely, and you do that in every war, for and what? it's a horrible thing to make sure that the radical Islamic ideology does not penetrate and does it's not attack It's causing us. it. It is it's not causing it. It, it is not oh, wait causing a it. Yes. And if you also do the math for the Iraqis, it's how many of almost close to 100,000 Iraqis have died in a country of 30 million, which would be equivalent to, I don't know how many, 500,000 Americans. Right. I mean, I mean, now, I don't know the exact number, but it, for every, like you said, 28. It's over 100,000 Iraqis. Uh, uh, over 100,000 Iraqis in a country of 30 million. It's, the casualties are insane, insane. And what they've done is destroy the entire infrastructure of the country. The people that are going after teachers, Sanitation worker, everybody, and they when they're basically, and now it's broken out into full-blown civil war, religious war, and yeah. to deny well, that. Well, you're right. That is the essence of the problem. We have, but we that have, same no, was no, documented no, no. And, the... and were we not in Iraq, Robin and Richard, they would be in Afghanistan. Always, some people want to fight a different war in a different place at a different time. I know but that we're, 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 like we're, in, we're we in Afghanistan, us, you know? that's where those people would be. They would be fighting us in Afghanistan, and then people would say, well, they are fighting why are us we in there? Afghanistan. They're fighting us and, anywhere. And by and the way, they're winning there, too. They are and they winning would be there fighting us here as well. No, they are, they the are president, out ridiculous. The president, the president said that we would stand down when they stood up, right? They've stood up 300,000 Iraqi security forces. Can we stand down now? We're going to yeah. keep on doing it until they, they know the that they is, can stand up the and they can defend. The problem is also that every time you have, like, when they massacre their graduating classes, I mean, like, they, at the beginning and now... Yeah. That's a deterrent to joining. Right. That, that does basically say, join, oops, too late, you know? But in spite of that, they're still showing up but, and, they're, and they're being recruited and they want to go and they want to... They're showing up because there because, are no other jobs. Well, you know that. And that's 30 percent unemployment. And in addition to 30 percent okay, unemployment. Okay, so why did they show up to vote Be for a job? You know, but the voting I, I really think it's so was easy a red hair. Dismiss no, the great sacrifice of no, the Iraqi people. Uh, no, we're not dismissing it. Or the sacrifice of our troops. I love I our know. troops. I want to bring them home. But what can you do? That I if do you too. withdraw, if you I withdraw, what do you create? Do you create another situation, as in you know what? the withdrawal from Vietnam and Cambodia? Well, you know Remember what? Cambodia? Three million people died after Cambodia, but that was. But that, that's good now that Henry Kissinger is advising this administration. <laughs> the, ghost, when, the ghost of Christmas The ghost died. is back. Yeah, the, the man who won the Nobel Prize. Henry Kissinger, who told Richard Nixon, you can't do any troop withdrawals from Vietnam because it'll be like salted peanuts. Right. People will like it. They'll get addicted to it. They'll want more. 
you know, I like salted peanuts. Let's have some salted peanuts. Let's not have Henry Kissinger going into the Oval Office every Stop week. I'm glad to hear that voice again. There are a lot of He's 83 years I mean, old. Okay, Retire but, him already and eat the salted peanuts. There are a lot of people advising the president. I know that there, it's a controversial war. There are uh, very strong feelings uh, about it. And so I know so do you we don't need like Dr. Strangelove? What is the alternative? But that's true. Uh, let me ask you, Bill, what is the alternative? We leave okay. there. What happens to the sacrifice of all those people who, who well, they paid will the work it price? out? Okay. They they, will it's work a, it out. First of all, the argument that we have to kill more people to honor the people who have already been killed, not a good argument to me. <laughs> Second of all, there is a different way to fight the war on terror. You, guys, you talked about Afghanistan and now the Taliban and Al Qaeda coming back in because it's been a handover to the United Nations, or basically to the NATO forces. Yes. But they're still doing, and they still are, you know, they, they always push back. I've been there three times to visit, and it's always, there was a point where literally they had bin Laden almost, it was cornered, but then, as you spoke about, they sent in the Afghanis to finish up, which is like, why? <laughs> You're going after a six foot seven Arab on dialysis, why? <laughs> and then it, all of a sudden, then things went away. He got away. Somehow he managed to infiltrate and go away and get through that because we let him go yeah because we didn't send u.s troops up there at the right time they were there eight weeks eight weeks okay it's always another war at another time at another place no it's this war we should be fighting al-qaeda we have a war in afghanistan we still have a war in iraq and we're going to keep at it and and make sure that we can be victorious we should be fighting al-qaeda but at, at what? Al Qaeda, not Iraq. So, is there is there nothing that could happen that would make you go, you know what? It was a bad idea, and we can't be victorious. I mean, people like William F. Buckley, All months right. ago. Uh, bringing that up, don't talk about William F. Buckley right now. <laughs> uh, I was on the phone uh, just now with Mr. Foley, and uh, I told him, don't be afraid, just get on a boat. Uh, I know what you're talking yeah, about. No, it's very frightening. We'll be way too young. Yes, yeah. but. Uh, <laughs> But even he wrote a column just called, It Didn't Work. Now, that's not a, a flaming liberal, William F. Buckley. If he can get on that page, well, if, you know, there were a lot if of Senator Warner's on that page, you it against, just, against but it, I know, it doesn't seem like we're at a that's stage true. where it's liberal versus conservative Bill, we even so have, much as realistic versus unrealistic. We even have the CIA now waking up and saying, gee, maybe the war in Iraq is causing terrorism. Duh. No, I mean, wait a minute. But if the CIA can the figure it out, it's pretty intelligence obvious. intelligence estimate, that was, talk about cherry-picking intelligence, that was one part of the phrase. The phrase then continued to say, but if uh, we are to be victorious in Iraq, that would be uh, uh, a very a major victory for the United yeah. States against the Islamic Jihad. And if pigs Islamic could jihadists. fly, but, well, you know, but we're not going to... But that's what they said. You can't just say one but, part of the phrase. You gotta say the whole sentence. But let me ask you just one question. It doesn't, it's obviously not working the way it is. We need either more troops or less troops. We have We've got to get more in there. We did. And, we, had, like a, we had 125 to start the year. We're now up at 145. Very quietly, right. the administration raised the number of troops. These are also guys who've been there way beyond their terms of duty. Then yeah. They, I, mean, I think it's time for a lot of these guys. You have to cycle them through. There's National Guard units that have been there way beyond, and they have this thing, it's like a backdoor draft, they call yes. it, where guys stay, and they stay out of loyalty to their units. I know guys who've lost legs and go back. Right. And they go back to stay loyal to their units because they know they're loyal to the, and to the Iraqi people, and they know what they're doing, but... And we've got to thank them for that. Yeah, and you also have to say, you have to bring them, 
you cycle the units through, it's like at a certain point, units become exhausted. This, this thing called morale. This is exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. Broken. And you have to cycle them through, and you've got to get new units. And how do you do that? You've basically got everyone there you can spare right now. And the idea of, well, then the only other thing is to institute a draft and watch how popular that war that becomes then. My shoes, my toes are busted. My kitchen says my bread is molded. I got a good job at the dollar store. One foot in the hole, one foot getting people with a broken mirror and a blown out speaker. And I ain't got much else to lose. I'm faded, black busted, been jaded, I've been dusted. I know that I've seen better days. to lose talking about bob woodward's book state of denial this one is much harsher on the bush administration than the previous two that woodward has written about them uh, and uh, in one part, he explains how there was a, a an urgent, nearly panic meeting on July 10th where uh, George Tenet, the head of the CIA, and the counterterrorism chief at the CIA, Kofor Black, came into Condoleezza Rice to try to convince her to do something about the al-Qaeda threat that they were convinced was coming soon. Uh, by the end, at the end, Black said, quote, the only thing we didn't do was pull the trigger to the gun we were holding to her head, meaning... We tried everything we could to try to get her to focus on it. She would not do it. She, uh, according to their description, brushed them off. And now the second problem is they never told the 9-11 Commission about this. Connelly Rice never did. And honestly, George Senate and Kofor Black didn't either. And that's a big problem as well. And now some 9-11 Commission members are furious, saying... What do you think we were asking you for? This yeah. is exactly what we were asking you for. There's some thought that Tenet's people, because they were uh, loyal to the Bush administration, are now incredibly resentful that the Bush administration has essentially jank hung them out to dry and hung George Tenet out to dry, that this is their retribution. Not that it's not true, but that, that they're, no, they're saying, all right, you know what, we're done lying down for you guys. Well, it, it, you know, I don't doubt that as a motivation at all, and I get that, and I understand that might be part of it. And, you know, if you want to take that – what they say with a grain of salt because of oh, that Oh, I wasn't even suggesting motivation. that. Yeah. No, but I think that that's fair. I mean, I, yeah, I don't but I don't wanna... think they'd lie about it. I'm not, I just think that they were Right, and I, and I think that they were wrong not to say to the, the 9-11 Commission in the first place. That unquestionably. Right. So now having said all that, lying to the 9-11 Commission is a, is, uh, is a crime. Yeah, Remember, that's the, the crime that they impeached Bill Clinton for. I don't oh, think... under oath, under oath, he I lied. I don't think Dick Cheney and George Bush were under oath. No, but Condoleezza Rice was. Everybody else was except them. All right, so uh, Mike Wallace uh, interviewed uh, Bob Woodward, who's written the book, State of Denial. Again, excerpts available at thewashingtonpost.com, uh, msnbc.com. They're really fascinating. They're worth reading. And 60 Minutes is running some, some excerpts as well. Uh, among them, George Bush's, uh, uh, J.R. George Bush's determination to stay in Iraq no matter what, and he references uh, his wife and his dog uh, in uh, in determining that uh, no matter what, uh, he will uh, stay the course in this Iraq. Is... And, and you'll hear Mike Wallace in, uh, talking to Bob Woodward here, and uh, this might not be the most important thing to come out of the book, but it is... Uh, 
it is certainly telling of the uh, absurd stubbornness on Bush's part and, and I think his stunning lack of curiosity regarding new developments doesn't make any difference what anybody says. He's going he's gonna to keep doing what he was doing. This is Bob Woodward on 60 Minutes last night with Mike Wallace. No, we're having a little trouble uh, getting that up. It's on a bizarre uh, uh, player. But uh, All uh, right, let me tell you uh, quickly what Newsweek has a quote. You have it, Jair? Okay, here it is. John McCain is saying that President Bush is not intellectually curious and that Bush once said, I don't want to be like my father. I want to be like... Yeah, isn't that... I, I think that's quite right. Uh, you think what's quite right? I think that that's what... This President Bush wants to be like Ronald Reagan. And what does that mean? That means taking the line, being inflexible if necessary, just say full speed ahead with what I've decided and what I believe. And uh, that's Ronald Reagan, and that's what George Bush wants to be in many ways. Uh, at one point, late last year, he had key Republicans up to the White House to talk about the war. And uh, the president did. The president did. And uh, he said something to them, which he also has said to other people privately in the White House, said, I will not withdraw even if Laura and Barney are the only ones supporting me. <laughs> Laura is the first lady. Barney is his dog. Jeez. That's just... Well, there's a couple of things in, the, in there that's amazing. First of all, that it tells you he doesn't care. I mean, the facts be damned. Right, facts facts be damned. And also... If, by the way, you know who's not uh, Laura or Barney? The general. No, that's what I was going to say. I mean, he's constantly telling us, I just I do what the general say. Yeah, unless they say leave, mm -hmm. in which well, case they're cut and running. First of all, there's two uh, things about that. Number one, Washington Post over the weekend ran a story about how the generals actually at CENTCOM, Central Command, told Bush before and, and the uh, Rumsfeld before the war that they needed 450,000 troops. And Bush said, no. So what happened to listen to the commanders? The commanders said, we need 450,000 troops. And they said, no. They didn't listen to the commanders. Another thing that Woodward talks about here is how close... John Murtha is to the military and how much he reflects what they're saying. So what Woodward is trying to tell you, and he says at some point that General John Abizade, who is running Iraq right now, is this close to John Murtha and put his fingers real close together. Quarter saying, of an inch apart. Meaning that they have almost the same exact point of view. What he's trying to indicate is the generals don't agree with what Bush is doing and they're trying to let people know that through John Murtha. Yeah, let's uh, let's run another clip, uh, another telling uh, a clip. Uh, first of all, I love that sort of the idea that Ronald Reagan was completely inflexible. That's actually not true yeah, at it's all. Not true. Yeah. Uh, Reagan raised taxes eleven times. People don't talk about that. But after he realized that he'd cut taxes far too much, they convinced him, "No, this is crazy. You got to." You know what else Reagan did? Reagan left Lebanon. He left Lebanon. Yeah, yeah th those were not inflexible you know what positions. Else he, did? he negotiated with the evil empire. That's exactly right. And by the way, another telling part of that little quote that we just played you is, this man hates his dad and, well, and won't listen to him. And well, I find that to be a real, that's a terrible characteristic. All right, let's uh, I'll skip around. Let's do that one. I want to talk about Rummy and Cheney too, but let's go to 41 versus 43. And this is uh, uh, Bob Woodward talking about how George Bush views uh, his father. 
Again, on 60 Minutes here, Woodward talking to Mike Wallace. And we just got a little piece of it, and here's President more. Bush is said to be in agony, anguished, tormented by the war in Iraq and its aftermath. Yes. And does, um, does he tell that to his boy? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, he tells it to Brent Scowcroft and shows it to Brent Scowcroft, his former national security advisor. The two of them are like brothers. You quote Barbara Bush as saying that her husband will not give the current president, George W., foreign policy advice unless he's asked for it. But you give the impression that, that young George doesn't ask old George questions about it anyway. That's correct. Uh, when I pressed the president on that, uh, he said they didn't have discussions. And, he looked uh, to I, a higher father, you y- said. Yes, the president said, in terms of strength, I appeal to a higher father. Yeah, we've heard that quote before, but uh, it's a stark reminder. I mean, my God, if your father were president of the United States and he'd fought the same war earlier, you think you might have asked him. Uh, the same man who, by the way, got you where you are. I mean, who pulled your ass out of every uh, hole that you found yourself in when you were an alcoholic, you know, and, and when you sank a bunch of companies and when you had nothing going for you and when you couldn't get into college and when you couldn't get out of Vietnam. That same father who helped to rescue you out of all those messes that you created for yourself. Look, I, some of you might not like George H.W. Bush. I happen to think that in foreign policy he was a very competent president. But even if you don't like him, I mean, what does that say about a son who is so ungrateful for a man who got him ex- everything that he's ever wanted? I mean, I just, I find it sickening. And it's, it's totally has everything to do with his own insecurities. And it's obvious. And plus, as Ben says, here's a man who's actually competent foreign policy president. You might want to get his advice. He fought the same guy in a war. You fought the same guy, Saddam Hussein. Call him on the phone. Ask, you know, and as we've said a million times, they didn't go into Iraq after liberating Kuwait for a very specific reason. And the reason was this. <laughs> and that's why, and it's, you know, it's actually the one part of that uh, thing, that quote that I liked was, I'm glad to see, I'm a big, for those of you who don't know, I'm a big George H.W. Bush supporter on foreign policy, not on the domestic stuff. Uh, although actually on some domestic matters as well. He raised taxes even though he knew that it was nearly political suicide, and he did it because it was the right thing to do, unlike his son, who would never, never do something that would hurt him politically. It's funny. That's the lesson the son has taken from the father. Right. Don't ever do anything to sacrifice yourself, even if it's for the best of the country. Also, the father at that time thought, I have such a huge lead over this yokel from Arkansas, I'm not going to lose. Well, I, I no, I don't no, no, that is no. That's definitely what they thought. They thought, but I mean, it doesn't it didn't mean doesn't he mean he didn't raise. I mean, I don't remember the timeline exactly now. But are you saying he raised taxes when he already knew Clinton was the candidate? I no, don't no, remember that being the case at no, all. No, he just thought he was so incredibly popular that he could do it, despite the fact that he'd made that pledge. That's it. Doesn't mean it wasn't the right thing to do. I'm not knocking it. It just it didn't defeat didn't seem really uh, possible at that point. So uh, it was kind of uh, for me, since I'm a bit of a defender of H.W. It was good to see that he hasn't lost his mind like everybody else. He thinks the invasion of Iraq was a terrible idea, and he's despondent over it. That makes me feel a little bit better about it. There's a lot of talk now, of course, about uh, there's some talk that Don Rumsfeld may not survive until the November elections. I, I don't know how I, I don't think that talk is terribly uh, credible. If this were a normal administration, he would be fired. But of course, if it were a normal administration, he would have been fired. 
years and years ago. Uh, so, uh, but uh, the political motivation for firing him is going to be as intense as it ever was, and 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 things like the Mark Foley scandal. Uh, only make Don Rumsfeld hold on his job more tenuous. But uh, we learned from uh, Bob Woodward about efforts to replace Don Rumsfeld immediately after the 2004 uh, elections, and that uh, gave us, uh, Woodward uh, provides us with some fascinating information about Laura Bush, Andy Card, and about Dick Cheney as well. You report that after uh, George W. Bush was re-elected, his then chief of staff, Andy Card, tried for months to president to fire Don Rumsfeld. Why? to replace him because uh, it wasn't working. Card felt very strongly that uh, the president needed a whole new national security team. You write, Laura Bush was worried that Rumsfeld was hurting her husband. Andy Card told her the president seemed happy with Rumsfeld, and the first lady replied, quote, he's happy with this, but I'm not. And later she said, I don't know why he's not upset. What's interesting, Andy Card is White House Chief of Staff. Every six weeks, set up a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Laura Bush. Set aside an hour and a half to talk about what's going on, what are the president's anxieties. Smart meeting. Mm -hmm. And in the course of these sessions, the problem with Rumsfeld, Oh, that just stopped. There's more to that. And she voiced her concern about the situation. And then the relevant part, as you hear Mike Wallace saying, but Dick Cheney wanted Rumsfeld to stay. Why? And Woodward says, well, Rumsfeld is his guy. And Cheney confided to an aide that if Rumsfeld goes, next they'll be after Cheney. I, there it is in a nutshell. That's exactly what it is. Ch Bush won't let Rumsfeld go because Cheney won't let him go. But when's the last time Bush made a decision on his own? I know what it was. It was Harriet Myers. Look at how that turned out, right? So he doesn't. Cheney or Rove makes every single decision in this White House. So Cheney says to Bush, I don't care who tells you. I don't care if your dad and Baker and every other advisor and every senator and every congressman tells you to let Rumsfeld go. Don't you do it. And Bush goes, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. And why? Because Cheney is worried about his own act. Eisenhower was really warning of was a military, industrial, congressional, academic, media, labor, cultural complex. They were something deeply, deeply rooted in American life by then. Welcome back. You are listening to The Time Is Now on Air America Radio. I'm Jim Forbes, and that was James Carroll, who I had a chance to speak with a few weeks ago while he was in New York City. When you speak of the Pentagon, say something about how this thing gets really close to your heart. The Pentagon was my first building. 
My dad worked in the Pentagon. He spent his whole career as an Air Force general there. He used to take me to the Pentagon on Saturdays and let me have the run of the place. As a young man coming of age in the Vietnam years, I found myself outside the Pentagon as a war protester, which was actually very complicated for me. The Pentagon surfaced in all of our consciousness with such power on September 11, 2001. The trauma of that day, a trauma felt by all Americans, uh, was uniquely tied to the building. I reclaimed my love for it. It informed my work on this book, House of War. Who are some of the key players in in your book, if we really want to understand the history? It's a great question because the characters are fantastic. Their stories are, are riveting. James Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense, with great power, put in place the framework of American attitudes for the Cold War. And that basic framework was really quite paranoid. We expected the absolute worst of the Soviet Union. And by and large, we prepared for it. And I argue more often than not, we then invited it in some awful way. And of course, the tragedy of Forrestal is that he was himself clinically paranoid, uh, which led him not long after he left office to commit suicide. Forrestal put in place uh, also a kind of succession Uh, Young men whom he empowered, George Kennan, another great figure, who began as a great prophet of the demonic threat from the Soviet empire, and yet who quickly moved away from military force as a way of resolving that threat. Kennan was partnered with another young man, another protege of Forrestal's named Paul Nitze, who actually over the course of decades, serving seven or eight presidents, did more to put in place the American dependence on nuclear weapons than any other single person. The men, and they're always men, who put in place the structures of this over-reliance on military power, they see the danger of it, and again and again as they retire, as they leave responsibility for it, they warn of it. We saw that with Eisenhower. We saw it with Nitza. We saw it with Kennan. We saw it only a few weeks ago with a new crop of uh, army generals retired who were warning of terrible mistakes being made in Iraq. Robert J. Lifton calls this retirement syndrome, and it itself points to the thing I'm warning of in this book, that there's something basically wrong with American over-reliance on military power. If you're just joining us, this is The Time Is Now on Air America Radio. I'm Jim Forbes, and I'm talking with James Carroll. It has become thinkable again that nuclear weapons might be used. I think I hear a strong sermon, and I know you used to be a priest, but... It mm-hmm. feels to me that in House of War, that, that one of the main sermons is, hey, folks, uh, look at this issue about nuclear war again. Yes, indeed. And we're shockingly re-embracing the ideal of a nuclear arsenal. The World War II generation understood this basic lesson. In the age of nuclear weapons, we simply must move away from reliance on war. And that was the conventional wisdom. Truman believed it. Eisenhower believed it. Kennedy believed it. They all spoke of the dream of eliminating nuclear weapons and, if possible, moving away from the structure of war, which is why, as a nation, we embrace the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, including Clause 6, which binds us legally to work for the elimination of nuclear weapons. Well, all of that has been forgotten in recent years. Do the people in the Pentagon understand the impact they have had? And then also, are they prepared to hear what you were saying in the House of War. Uh, you, you know that community yes, well, better the, than most of us. Well, the Pentagon is no monolith. One of the people I interviewed was then Secretary of Defense, William Cohen. He compared the Pentagon to Moby Dick. 
he compared himself to Ahab, a man trying to get a hold of this great white whale, this monster, really. The truth is that people in the Pentagon are at the mercy of a dynamic none of them understands and none of them control. And when this dynamic has its own way, things that nobody could ever have wished for begin to happen. In Iraq, we see that tragically, painfully. Nobody in the Pentagon five years ago uh, foresaw what we're dealing with today. Or if they did, they kept it to themselves. Now the United States has done savage damage, not only to itself, but to this new century. And why? For what? Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Back on Iraq, a group of American and Iraqi health officials today released a report saying that 655,000 Iraqis have died since the Iraq war. That figure is 20 times uh, the figure that you cited in December at 30,000. Do you care to amend or update your figure, and do you consider this a credible report? No, I don't consider it a credible report. Neither does General Casey, and neither do Iraqi officials. Uh, I do con- I do know that a lot of innocent people have died, and that troubles me, and it grieves me. Uh, and I uh, applaud the Iraqis for their courage in the face of violence. I I am you know amazed that this is a society which so wants to be free that they're willing to. You know that there's level of violence that they that they tolerate, oh, and God. it's now time for the Iraqi government to work hard to bring security in neighborhoods so people can feel can feel uh, you know at peace. No question, it's violent, but this report is one they put it out before. It was pretty well just the methodology is pretty well discredited. But I, I you know, and, uh, I. I, I I talked to people like General Casey, and of course the Iraqi government put out a statement talking about the report. Uh, yeah. 30,000, Mr. President, do you stand by your figure? 30,000? You know, I, I stand by the figure a lot of innocent people have lost their life. Okay, this has not been disputed. The last report that they did in the Lancet was not disputed. In fact, the only two people that used the numbers. We're not the president and the vice president. No, the only people that use the numbers that were well accepted in the scientific community, that were well accepted in the survey community, that were well accepted as being uh, the same survey methods that were uh, used to measure mortality during conflicts in the Congo and Kosovo and Sudan and other regions have said, this is the correct methodology, this is what you do, and that they went the extra mile here and went to households and asked them to produce death certificates and that 92% of the cases they were presented with death certificates and that they saw 
that uh, 98.1, per, uh, 91.8% of the deaths on the death certificates were caused by violence, gunshots being the primary cause of violence, second to car bombings. I'm sailing away Set an open course for the virgin sea So climb aboard, we'll search for tomorrow, and every shore, and I'll try. Let's go to Beth in Maine, line six. Welcome to the program, Beth. Hi, um, I just would like your um, take, if you think, why our government is stirring the pot in the Middle East and in this country, like, why are they... There's some underlying theme. They are you. I mean, basically, what you're asking is why is the Bush administration following a policy that is doing exactly the opposite of what everyone believes needs to be done? Right. Like, what? What are? What is their true agenda? Well, I th- you, you think. I mean, what you think it is? Well, I appreciate the call, Beth. Uh, I'll tell you what I think the, their agenda is. I think this administration is uh, driven by a neocon agenda that has more to do with China than anything else. And there has always been a belief, if you go back to uh, the uh, mid-90s and you read the Project for a New American Century, these guys, uh, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, Hadley, Fife, all of these guys believed that the real threat was China, and that for us to be a, not just a superpower, but a hyperpower, one that spreads a Pax Americana throughout the world, we must have hegemony over the Middle East. We must control the spigot of oil. Uh, This theory has been discounted in just about every other circle other than those who control our, our government now. And uh, I don't believe that they realized how bad this was going to uh, work out. But the same lack of experience, the same lack of intelligence, the same lack of rationality that led them to believe that we could become some type of hyperpower. We could control the whole world if only we had permanent bases in Iraq is the same Lack of experience, irrationality, the same lack of intelligence, the same lack of of understanding that has presented this drastic failure for American foreign policy and for American security. That's the only explanation. When you turn around to look, it's gone behind you on its face. It's wearing your confused expression where your eyes don't go. Where your eyes don't go, a part of you is hovering. It's a nightmare that you'll never be discovering You're free to come and go Or talk like Curtis Blow But there's a pair of eyes Back of your head Every jumbled pile of person Has a thinking part that wonders What the part that isn't thinking Isn't thinking of Should you worry when the skull head Is in front of you Or is it worse because it's always 
Uh, look, the Mark Foley story is a is a huge story. It's a significant story of uh, obsession with politics and an abdication of responsibility. We had great sound bites from Dennis Hastert. We played some earlier in the program uh, from John Boehner. Jenk made a declaration, pounded the gavel uh, that Hastert may be on the way out. I'm not saying it's unimportant. It is a an, a, there's an exploitation issue to it, obviously. Uh, there's Mark Foley's ridiculous excuses. I'm not blaming anybody but myself. Uh, except uh, I was uh, molested and I'm an alcoholic and the sun was in my eyes and I did. I accidentally brought my brother's homework and not mine, but I did. I did it. You know, please, please shut up. Um, That said, there are so many more important stories that we and the rest of the media are missing because of this, because we only have a capacity to pay attention to just so much while we try to lead our lives and and raise our kids, which I don't have, but I understand many of you do. Um, here's what happened yesterday in Iraq. 59 killed in various incidents around the country. Since Monday, when the Foley story uh, broke over the weekend, but it exploded on Monday again, as we learned the extent of the uh, cover-up on Monday. Since Monday, 19 American servicemen have been killed in Iraq. That is the highest three-day total since the war began in March of 2003. Even after the mission was accomplished? Despite the mission being accomplished. I mean, I, I, 19 servicemen killed in three days, the highest three-day total we have. It is getting worse. I got news for you. We're going to break that record at some point. The L.A. Times, the front page of the L.A. Times, uh, reporting that the 1,200-member Iraqi police brigade, remember when the Iraqis stand up, we'll stand down. Part of that is the Iraqi army. Part of it's the Iraqi police brigade, 1,200 members, disbanded among, um, amid credible reports that it participated in a massacre of Sunnis on Sunday. The New York Times, in a piece, of course, not on the front page, says that these the, this, these death squad killings, essentially, these roving bands of government-sponsored militia that now exists, uh, going, uh, that, that these uh, are they're, they're often perpetrated, again, as we said, by Iraqi security forces like the police brigade, are the main cause of Iraqi deaths right now. Not insurgents, but generally Shiites working in some capacity for the Iraqi security forces. So... Come on. Well, I have a question. We were supposed to... Jenk. Okay, thank you. Uh, when we were supposed to stand down when they stood up, what happens when they stand down? Yeah, what happens what if they... What do we do? What, yeah, what happens if they don't... What, what do we do when they sit down? Yeah, what do we do when we fire them? When the Rockies sit down, we panic. <laughs> well, okay. So, first of all, uh, I read into that story, the one, uh, the couple that Ben mentioned there in the New York Times and the LA Times, and... Uh, one of the Sunnis says to the reporter, please tell them not to send the police. So we wonder, wait, wait you're getting massacred here. And your 52 bodies showed up yesterday, 59 bodies showed up today. I mean, people are dying left and right, 19 U.S. soldiers. Why not send the police? It's because it's the police that are doing it. The, the army and the police that we stood up, that we trained, that we're so proud of, they're the ones that are involved with the militias that are kidnapping uh, people torturing them and killing them and dumping their bodies on the side of the road. At the conclu- Congratulations, mission accomplished! At the conclusion of Fletch, which is being remade with Zach Braff, and I'm looking forward to that, uh, Chevy Chase is with the lovely Dana Wheeler-Nicholson, uh, and they, are at, uh, they have exposed Tim Matheson for the fraud that he is, 
And Chevy Chase says, I've written it all down, and I've, I'm going to publish it in the paper tomorrow. I've figured it out. You know, you're the bad guy. You're the one bringing drugs in, and it'll be in tomorrow's paper. And then Tim Matheson points out, well, I'll just kill you tonight, and I'll be on a plane to South America before it hits the papers. Mm-hmm. And Chevy Chase is like, ooh. <laughs> right. And then, think about that. And then Joe Don Baker, the chief of police, walks in. Trust me, this is a relevant story. Barely, but relevant. And Joe Don Baker walks in, and Chevy Chase says, oh, who's corrupt and working with Matheson. And uh, so Joe Don Baker walks in, and Chevy Chase says, oh, thank God, the police. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And Chevy Chase, of course, in this story, are the Sunnis. (laughs) Okay, you see how that works out. So, uh, thank God, the police. And we have no backup plan. There is no plan B. Plan A was they'll stand up, we'll stand down. Except they stood up and they turned out to be it tied in with the militias and they're doing the torture and the killings. You know, you know, you're right. There is no plan B and we brush over it and Lord knows you don't brush over it in general. And I'm not so – but I mean we and as Americans, as people, we brush over. There's no plan B in part because anybody who mentioned plan B said they – the de- Secretary of Defense who was in charge of plan A said, I'll fire you if you talk about plan B. Well, I mean actually, it's not just – well, I'm sorry. Let me just get it out because it's, it, it's this sort of brushing over that these guys, hey, they don't have a plan B. My God, people are dying because they don't have a plan B. They are incompetent. They are, in fact, criminally incompetent. Nearly, you know, we now in counting Afghanistan and Iraq, we have crossed the point more people have died in Afghanistan and Iraq, both of them incompetently run ultimately, than died on September 11th, more Americans. Well, Ben, actually in the beginning, they didn't even have a plan A. Remember Rumsfeld said, uh, we're going to just take Baghdad and we're going to depose Saddam Hussein. And then the general said, okay, Great, and... Well, he, they interpreted that as plan B. The theory was plan A, we'll topple Baghdad, and we'll have a party, and every Iraqis will be grateful, and then it'll be great. And the general said, at, at CENTCOM, at Central Command, said, wait a minute, wait a minute, part of plan A is, what do we do after we take Baghdad? After Saddam Shut falls? Up. And Shut up. And... Okay. You're fired. <laughs> no, but seriously, it, two different generals have now come out, uh, General Brigadier General Mark Scheid and General Batista, and they both said that Rumsfeld said anybody who does post-war planning will be fired. I mean, that's so stunning, I've never gotten past that. I think it's criminally stunning. I mean, I don't know what statute applies, but it is theoretically criminally uh, negligent. And then, okay, so we got past that. Eventually, they did some sort of panicked plan after they realized, oh, my God, there's an insurgency. Yeah, maybe we should have done some planning in the first place. And they had plan A, which was that we'll stand them up and then we'll stand down. And then at that point, people asked, is there a plan B? And they said... No, there's no plan B. And right now, plan A has failed, and we have no plan B, Except and they're heading straight over that cliff. And by the way, regarding plan B, just for the record, despite what the uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration advisory panel said, they were like, oh, plan B, oh, no, that's right, that'll, that'll reduce abortions. We're going to ban that, too, because we're crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, different plan B, but nonetheless, I thought I'd bring that out. Another story in this morning's New York Times, which everybody uh, uh, should uh, check out, is a story about the U.S. Army's efforts to, quote, devise a strategy to fight counterinsurgency, which, again, that was probably what ought to have been plan B uh, back in planning in 2002 uh, for implementation in 2003. We're doing it now, despite the fact that the New York Times, later in the paper, in the same paper, so devise a plan to fight the counterinsurgency while the same paper acknowledges pages later that the primary cause of Iraqi deaths are not even insurgents anymore. They're death squads run by Shiites connected to the Iraqi security forces. Is the violence up? Yes. 
Are we idiots? Yes. It's the same paper. It's in the same. So great. I mean, it's a little late to be fighting, coming up with a counterinsurgency strategy, and I don't want to uh, uh, get on the Marines or the Army for not having it, because believe us, we well know it's not their fault. There are only people to hold accountable to this or the administration. George Bush, Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, period. End of sentence. You bet. Thank you. And not a comma, period. Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld have, it's amazing what they've done in the last six years. They have simply, and it, I'm, it's a historic thing. And it's, it's an interesting, as far as not just for politics, but human nature. Cheney just simply said, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to grab all the power, and I'm not going to listen to anybody in a democracy for six years. Didn't listen to anybody. And Colin Powell got in his way, fired. Right? Anybody who got in his way, fired. John Bolton, if you got in John Bolton's way, he looked to get you fired. And then they turned around and all the people, the intelligence people who were saying, wait, 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 we're not sure about Iraq's weapon of mass destruction. They said, oh, oh, well, we went in because of the intelligence people. Now Tennant's mad because he realized he got used. Now Colin Powell's mad because he realized he got used. But Cheney used them all and he, now you say, everybody's screaming, you can't do this. Iraq's out of control. You don't have a plan B. And you know what Cheney and Rumsfeld say? They go straight ahead. Yeah, they don't care. There's only one a single moment of accountability left. It's on November 7th, 2006. Yeah, and, 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 and what's interesting is that, as you point out, you know, Powell and, uh, and Tenet are so, symptomat- are so emblematic excuse me, of what uh, you were reading in Bob Woodward's book, State of Denial. I mean, they're the big names, but of course, you know, and it started Lawrence Wilkerson, the people working for Powell who decided to fight Powell's fight when Powell thought, I can't do it. I'm not going to bash the guys who I just worked for. He doesn't have it in him, which is unfortunate. See, I want to scream at the top of my lungs to Colin Powell. You wonder why I scream. The reason is, look, dude, they were playing you all along and you're still being polite. These aren't normal times. This isn't Reagan or Bush or Clinton or anything else we've dealt with. These people are radicals and people are reacting normally to people who are radicals and that's why that is the great advantage of the radicals. That's why Cheney and Rumsfeld, they just bulldoze everybody because people can't believe that they're radicals. Yeah, and and, and what I was the point I was making about Woodward's book is that people like Powell and Tennant and all the sources in Woodward's book, sources who sort of, in, 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 and granted, he's talking to some different people, but people who either had George Bush and Dick Cheney's back in the earlier books or were silent or wouldn't speak out against them. The tide has turned dramatically. And I think, by the way, more than anybody else, the people who led the way on that uh, was the military. Yes. That sent a signal to so many people. If the generals can say something, then I can say something. It's about time that they put together their spine. I don't mean the military. I mean the rest of these guys. Now, Colin Powell has done that to some small degree, and he says today or yesterday in a speech in uh, Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota that the allies, United States and, uh, and allies cannot resolve the current sectarian violence in Iraq. You don't say. And he said uh, also, quote, only the Iraqi people can resolve this. He says U.S. troops have to stay in Iraq for some time. But there is a limit to the patience of the American people in Iraq, quote, staying the course isn't good enough because the course has to have an end. And right now it does not have an end. So Colin Powell basically coming out for redeployment. And, and of course, think about that, that there has to be an end. That is all. That is all that John Murtha said. That is all that Russ Feingold said. That is all that John Kerry said. That is all that any responsible Democrat has said. Exactly what Colin Powell is saying now. There has to be a time which you leave. The issue will be 
when is that time? And, and by the way, also what apparently what John Abizade said to John Murtha, uh, the, the, military, the, the military commander in charge of the forces in Iraq. So for the love of God, and the administration brands every one of those people who it's convenient to, the Feingolds and the Careys and the Murthas, as if they're, and Joe Biden, those that they're cutting and running. Bush did it yesterday. We brought it to you yesterday. Washington Post did a story on it. He uh, again called the Democrats cut and run people, and he said they were soft on terrorism. Have to fight them over there before we don't fight them over and here. And they said the, the, the Democratic plan is to let the terrorists attack again and then do something. I mean, these people, they have no conscience. And I just want to put a point of emphasis on this, and it is not a political thing. I am not a Republican uh, anymore, that's for damn sure. I haven't been a Democrat my whole life until the last five years where I'm now an independent. And I, I got to tell you something. This is, I, the Democrats are not my uncles. I don't care. And a lot of time I find them loathsome in the way that they are so typically political. Okay, Put all that aside. This isn't about Democrats and Republicans. This is not a normal election. We have only one opportunity left. November 7th, 2006. If the Republicans find a way to retain the House and the Senate, there will be no accountability. Dick Cheney will take that as a 100% green light. Keep going over that cliff. Keep torturing people. Keep taking away American rights. And keep doing exactly what you're doing in Iraq. It can't stand. You can't let it happen. I'm a 79-year-old man veteran of WW2 and Korean Wars, and came across Best of the Left quite accidentally while looking for Jack Clark Blast the Right podcast. While I am, of course, retired now, I have the free time and opportunity to listen to just about all of the left side radio and streaming shows such as Randy Rhodes, Sam Cedar, Tom Hardman, etc. I'm not a podcaster, don't have an iPod as they're a little too expensive for my fixed income right now, but I am reading all that I can find on the subject of iPodding. In my opinion, I believe iPodding is the future and will become one of the most important technologies in reaching people, especially the younger generation of today, and you, my friend, will be on the cutting edge of it all. Your ingenious idea of taking excerpts from all of the above-mentioned progressive radio talk show hosts, putting it all together with music, was one of the most pleasurable experiences I've had in my lifetime. I have to confess, the segment on torture brought tears to my eyes knowing what our wonderful country has become because of neocons in the Republican Congress and our White House. If we're lucky, very lucky, and the 06 election isn't stolen from us as the 04 and 2000 were, we might be able to begin putting it back together again, but I'm afraid it will take generations to do it. It won't happen in my time, but perhaps yours. Let's keep hope alive. Please keep doing what you're doing. Try to reach younger people in this country and make them understand what the stakes are for their own future as well as their children's future. With greatest respect and admiration, Cliff Rylands, Eugene, Oregon. Best email ever. Have a good one, everybody. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor